Hello, you are listening to Maghrebin Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology and many other subjects. In this podcast, recorded via Zoom on May 13th, 2022, Katarzyna Falenska, Lecturer in Art History at Newcastle University and Project Coordinator at the Centre d'études Maghrebines à Tunis, interviews Ignacio Villalan and aims contemporary art follow about contemporary art in Tunisia. To see related slides, please visit our website www.themagrebpodcast.com. Welcome to our podcast. My name is Katarzyna Falenska, and our guest today is Ignacio Villalon, who has recently completed the Contemporary Art Fellowship funded by the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. So, Ignacio, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And you have really spent the last few months closely observing the contemporary art scene in Tunis, looking at cultural infrastructures, at sources of funding, at the different challenges that the sector might be facing. So I want to start off our conversation by asking you, where do conversations around contemporary art take place in Tunis? What are the spaces where people meet and talk about contemporary art? Yes, uh, of course, galleries, museums, Also universities, there are certain residencies uh, that exist in Tunisia where such debate occurs. Now, one of the challenges which I observe over the course of my research is the fact that um, there are relatively few, at least as far as I could tell, um, publications that, that could serve as a kind of public sphere for art. Um, it is a very small domain of activity in general compared uh, well, to other domains, but more importantly, uh, to other countries where there are contemporary art scenes. So it's, uh, there is a history, but in its current form, it is, it is relatively small and also sort of detached from that history. So maybe we'll go that into that later. But yes, in any case, uh, you could say uh, museums, uh, residency spaces, and universities are, are especially the places where the debate occurs or discussion occurs. And are these mostly public um, spaces, spaces funded by the state, or are we talking more about privately funded galleries? This is not my area of expertise, um, but Jessica Grushwitz knows uh, quite a bit about this, and she's affiliated with the, uh, with the CEMAT. She works on the Ecole de Tunis, uh, which was a, a loose collection of artists uh, who, among other things, Um, had a sizable imprint, I think, on the, well, the, the early Tunisian state and on public artworks, etc. So there is, there is a strong sort of public component to Tunisian art historically, but that has uh, increasingly died out. So here, just to clarify, we're speaking about the 1960s, 1970s, when artists such as Safiya Farhat, um, Abdelaziz Gorji, they've worked very closely and were funded by the state as well, and were also commissioned to make many public art um, uh, installations or murals, uh, any kind of artistic interventions in the public spaces. So here you're referring to the book by Jessica Gershwitz on the Ecole de Tunis, is that right? Exactly right, exactly right. So there is a history uh, of that, but now uh, in the contemporary art scene, in, in, as it exists now, uh, it is overwhelmingly composed, well, it's composed of a few things. There are, there are private galleries, 
Well, there is, for example, the Gorji Gallery, which is uh, founded by Abdelaziz Gorji, the first gallery in Tunisia, who was a member of the École de Tunis. But uh, it is a private gallery, so there's sort of some of the main actors in the public sphere historically were also actors in the private sphere. And so the, the Gorji Gallery still is, is still active today with Aisha Gorji, uh, his daughter. But I guess you could say that uh, there's some confusion there, I guess, or, or some ambiguity, I guess, between what exactly, who, is a, who are the specific actors. Nevertheless, uh, I digress a bit. Uh, basically, you have some uh, galleries which are private, and you also have sort of new, new spaces emerging now. You know, you also have uh, institutions that are funded, for example, by, by outside funders, uh, especially um, foreign uh, institutes, uh, the European Union, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So th there's basically this sort of double sort of trajectory where you have this sort of old canonical kind of Ecole de Tunis and all these important figures that took part in this public thing and created a kind of establishment. And then you have more new, uh, new spaces uh, that emerge, well, especially in the past decade, really, with uh, some amount of foreign funding. And speaking about these longer histories of modern art in Tunisia as well, the Ecole de Tunis, the work of Safiya Ferhat, Abdelaziz Gorji, and um, all the other artists, Zubair Turki, associated with the Ecole de Tunis, um, one has to also think about the union of Tunisian plastic artists, which um, has been historically a very important sort of network of artists that has also supported artists. So have you done also research into their role in the current moment? Um, is the union still a relevant uh, actor within the contemporary art scene in Tunis? I didn't delve into this question, and I think, um, well, now to refer to, I think Bayouth Mani was the one who, who's also affiliated with the Semat, who, who's the one who gave me um, a lot of information about um, uh, the role of the union. Um, as I understand it, they are not really what is sort of up and coming, what's happening. So I think Tunisian artists, they sort of, uh, there's not, I don't think the need is felt to be a member. Uh, and I think many people just do independent work outside of the auspices of any kind of uh, institution, uh, any kind of public institution, uh, besides, for example, the occasional, um, well, exhibits uh, where you need uh, permission from the Ministry of Culture, etc. So um, that's at least what I found regarding that specifically. And you have also mentioned uh, before the foreign sources of funding. Now, how do these foreign um, funding and grant uh, sources, uh, how do they condition the kind of contemporary art that is being made? Do you see a difference in terms of what artistic practice is encouraged by uh, foreign funding um, programs? Foreign funding, that has changed, I think, the, uh, the Tunisian art scene. Uh, it is uh, in part contributed to making a kind of, um, well, uh, sort of responding to, to international trends, maybe more so. It's also, you know, in the, in the post kind of revolutionary context where art was, art did play a role. Yeah, for example, murals and then sort of many, a series of, well, there are there many events that, that touched upon, uh, you know, the political history of Tunisia that, that really emerged after the revolution. There is also, however, sort of general, I think, um, association between democracy and art um, on the part of foreign funders as well, that I think, um, you know, for better or for worse, sort of, you know, makes uh, foreign funders sort of, um, how do I put it, sort of think that to promote art is to promote democracy. 
it's a debatable claim, and I think there's good arguments on either side. I mean, you know, freedom of expression, of course, is uh, is 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 most crucial for for having sort of bold art and what have you. And this is, you know, one of I think one I think it's agreed that this is one of the more concrete gains of the Tunisian Revolution. Um, but the question is sort of um, is that is freedom of expression and artistic expression all there is to uh, democracy? So that's sort of the, the overarching question. So if you have foreign funding that kind of goes into, uh, into culture, sort of under the idea that this would be, well, uh, promoting democracy, it's not so clear that it is really promoting democracy. It might be promoting sort of, you know, within a, within a relatively limited, you know, domain of activity, a kind of, well, it might be encouraging political statements. It might, it might be fostering statements that already exist because I don't want to, I don't want to sort of uh, diminish the fact that there are artists with legitimate political statements. So in any case, you, you sort of see the, um, the sort of changes that might a uh, sort of foreign funding has. Foreign funding, however, is, uh, well, it's, especially for young artists, is some sort of maybe the only way you can be an artist. So, so to take foreign funding, you know, doesn't mean to be sort of just a mouthpiece, sort of. It's, I think, in part taking what you can get as a Tunisian artist. Um, and saying what you can, according to certain institutionally imposed, uh, you know, limitations and requirements or what have you. So, so just because it's foreign funding doesn't mean it ought to be dismissed. <laughs> I guess I could say that. Um, but it certainly does. It certainly represents a change um, that is post-revolution. That is uh, that kind of goes with this association between art and democracy, and it is certainly very different from this from all this Ecole de Tunis stuff we were talking before earlier, where sort of, you know, it was very much a domestic, I think it was very much a domestic nation building project. And now what you have is, well, it's a sort of, a sort of spirit of international liberalism kind of uh, guiding art in Tunisia. I remember reading in the report that you've written as a result of your research over these several months that many of the foreign uh, funding opportunities are also directed at specifically quite young artists. So there are these age criteria in terms of who can apply for them. Can you explain a little bit why is it um, specifically younger artists who are addressed? Well, this was a finding that I, it was repeated to me several times. I was not able to confirm it in the case of, for example, specifically calls for artists between ages X and Y. But it was repeated several times by, well, by artists, uh, for example, uh, and by professors. Uh, so I think this uh, partly ties back to, it, it ties back again to uh, even more associations, I think, with democracy. Democracy, art, youth, they all go together as if, uh, as if democracy was art and art had to be young people and uh, et cetera. So, um, uh, so I think it, it, it follows that. You know, I, I, I don't know if there's, you know, questions. I don't, I don't want to be sort of, I don't, I don't want to speak too conspiratorially, you know, but I don't know there's, I don't know there's sort of, you know, questions of, um, I think in part, it's also the idea of an investment, you know, you invest in artists and, you know, well, for better or for worse, I mean, you can certainly speak to this better than I can, but it's sort of hard to know what uh, does or is, you know? So when people invest a lot of money in it, sort of you don't really know what's going on and of course you know democracy can it's an easy word to say uh, but it could really sort of consist in you know funding people who could create objects which then have you know some kind of 
market value and beyond market value can be paraded in biennials around the world and you can have artists from this country and that country and there's a sort of image of kind of global participation in a kind of world community when in reality what you have is a call for applications and a few artists that become big in a specific place and when you look actually at the art scenes are actually quite small so I suppose this is my, these are sort of, you know, on the basis of things that I heard, these are my own hypotheses. So I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to say that they're fact in any way. Uh, these are my own hypotheses. I, you know, I can't say that, I can't say myself that I'm entirely convinced, but this is, these are the best ideas I have at the moment. Yeah. In terms of how the local art scene in Tunis connects to this global contemporary art that we often speak about. Um, you also mentioned in your report that it is actually extremely difficult to take artworks out of Tunisia, right? So you might be able to send yeah. a digital file, you might be able to send a video um, over email to a curator abroad, but actually to take out a three-dimensional uh, object, it is a more complicated situation, isn't it? Yes, that's a very good point. So yes, uh, so basically um, there is a... Uh, a law which I believe dates back to 1994, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So basically this law, uh, as I understand it, was, was intended to make sure that sort of um, uh, cultural artifacts, uh, they not leave Tunisia. So, you know, this especially regarding things like ruins, uh, ancient ruins. However, the, the wording is vague enough to sort of apply to all heritage, all objects having to do with Tunisian heritage, um, which means that, you know, it can also apply to paintings now, um, or sculpture or what have you, any, any physical object. Um, so yes, this, you know, it's clearly, it's, it's, if, if, you, if you paint a painting today in Tunisia, you're a Tunisian artist and you, when you try to sell it, you're not, you're no way you're sort of taking part in, international kind of, you know, artifact smuggling. So it, it, it would obviously be a kind of misapplication of the spirit of the law, I think. But it has, I think, been applied. I think it was applied, uh, you know, uh, well, in the, in the Ben Ali years by it's sort of just, just, just in case, basically. I think vague wording is part of, well, of, of its effect, sort of. I think it's, it's a little bit by design, or at least it became useful. The fact that it was so vague. So basically, what you can do, what that meant, is that at the time, sort of, you know, you could you could clamp down, or you could you could at least make sure that dissident uh, artistic voices don't make it out. So you know, paintings or sculptures that could have dissident messages. Uh, it still applies, however, today, and I think it's sort of uh, well, it's, it's a risk sort of thing. Uh, I think if you buy a Tunisian painting here and you want to leave, well, it's a risk. So that's it. So you could get out, and you might not be able to. Now, of course, if you have a whole art show, I think it's quite difficult because then sort of it's, you know, if you're at the airport and you're an artist and you have many in the sort of boxes or crates of, uh, of works, then, you know, obviously I think, you know, people look into it. So it's very difficult. And as a result, um, you know, what that means is, uh, well, in part, Tunisian art is not present in the international scene really all that much. And, you know, in general, if you really zoom back, you can sort of see that, well, Tunisian art well, it's, I mean, it's a global age, so it certainly is international in its influences, but it really doesn't, I mean, beyond, I suppose, I mean, this is a whole other topic, it'd be social media and things that go on online, of course. Um, but there are international influences here, but when it comes to um, getting artwork out, 
are from Tunisia uh, out and, and sort of having an influence uh, outside of Tunisia, it's, well, it's, it's negligible. It really doesn't have that much of an echo, I don't think, outside of Tunisia. So there are very specific limitations on uh, contemporary art in Tunisia, and uh, it also casts a rather critical lens on these very utopian ideas of a global contemporary art where artists coexist in the digital global age um, and uh, participate in this contemporary art scene on an equal footing, right? There are these um, legal restraints through which you simply cannot um, jump over, right? It's conditions uh, where you're going to show your art, who, uh, what is the network that you might build around yourself? So that's, I think, a really important um, point. I also wanted to speak about the question of language. Um, I myself went recently to uh, the newly opened, relatively newly opened uh, City of Culture, which uh, hosts the Museum of Modern and Contemporary Art. Um, and all of the wall text, all of the labels were written in Arabic with sporadic French translations. But when you go to different galleries, it is usually the case that Arabic is not really present. You have curatorial texts written in French, translated into English. So I wonder if you can speak about uh, these differences in terms of how can we explain uh, the preference for Arabic in some spaces and the preference for French and others, and um, which institutions might lean to one language and which institutions might prefer and privilege the other. There is a distinction. Um between public and private institutions. So, so in public institutions, you know, they, Arabic being the official language of Tunisia, you'll have curatorial information, information about paintings, et cetera, you'll have it in Arabic, more so than in French. Uh, I mean, you know, very often you have both. But when it comes to private galleries, it's overwhelmingly in French. And sort of the fact of the matter is, I think that the, that, you know, whether, whether you're going to visit a, a, an exhibit in a, um, in a public institution or a private institution or what have you. If you are interested in contemporary Tunisia, you typically speak French. It's a disproportionately Francophone um, group of people who are interested in the arts in Tunisia uh, and contemporary art, I should say, because there is there are a vast domain of creative uh, aesthetic uh, visual activity in Tunisia, which would not fall under contemporary art, but which are, you know, you, which you may not be Arabophone at all. So, or Francophone at all, sorry. sorry. So yes, there's certainly a distinction there. That is a big distinction, and it's sort of um, kind of paradox, which is the fact that um, you know, sort of, the Tunisian art scene is very francophone. Now it is Arabophone as well, um, but it is disproportionately francophone, I should say. Um, and but at the same time, you have many artists who, so their artwork consists of painting letters, Arabic letters which is a very interesting thing uh, to sort of ruminate on a bit, especially because, you know, uh, well, there is a, a traditional, if you like, um, form of visual aesthetic production. I say all this to avoid saying, you know, art, just for reasons of definition, uh, which is calligraphy, sort of a traditional form of art, if you like, which is calligraphy, which is exactly that. It's about, you know, writing letters, Arabic letters, uh, according to certain criteria. Uh, which are, you know, normative cards, which I'll beautify the words therein. In any case, uh, the fact that sort of street art kind of aesthetic, so a kind of graffiti, if you like, inspired style of writing letters once put on a canvas, then sort of flies as contemporary art. Whereas, you know, when you write on a page 
in a traditional style, if you like, a certain specific script, then it doesn't fall within it. And then add on top of that, the fact that, you know, imagine you do it on a canvas and sort of and you present your canvas and you sit there and you present, you know, uh, you're presenting this canvas. And it, I could totally imagine a situation where, you know, a painter who paints Arabic words on a canvas would be explaining to an audience the meaning of these Arabic words in French. So uh, there's a kind of uh, strange thing going on, um, which, which, you know, which would require a whole other uh, discussion, I think. <laughs> but uh, I don't think I could delve into it now. But it's uh, certainly something, it's certainly a fascinating question. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely this paradox where the Arabic script becomes the iconography or the subject matter. But when the artwork is spoken about, it's not really Arabic that's being used, um, at least in these private gallery contexts, which so often, as you rightly said, privilege um, the French language. I want to pick up on street art. You've mentioned street art. So I want to take us out of the gallery and museum settings and think about street art, but also site-specific um, artworks and artistic interventions. And I know that you have um, interviewed the artist uh, Farah Khalil recently about her project um, Effet de Serre, uh, which took place at the Belvedere Park um, in Tunis. I wondered if you want, um, wanted to tell us a little bit about what this project consisted of um, and how we can situate it also in this broader contemporary art scene in Tunis. Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, yes, I mean, I just get, I'll allude to it briefly here because there is the uh, podcast, although it is in French, so maybe I'll give a little Anglophone synopsis. So the Effet de Serre project, I'll, I'll try to, you know, do justice to it, was a, basically it was a, an exhibit in the Parc Belvedere Park here that made use of, a, uh, uh, of an abandoned greenhouse, which basically... Uh, it was an exhibit within the greenhouse, which had uh, several elements, uh, many of them having to do with, uh, with flora, uh, namely the eucalyptus uh, tree and the, uh, and, and the palm, the, the date palm. So um, Farah Khalil, uh, Tunisian artist, of course, uh, you know, in my discussion with her, she sort of explains this, uh, this dichotomy, which is quite interesting. You know, the, um, the eucalyptus uh, uh, tree was brought to Tunisia under... Uh, during the, the French protectorate. And so it is sort of, uh, well, it, it, is, it is tied somehow with, uh, with the colonial project and, you know, you know movement of, of goods, but even of nature in a sort of under the influence of colonialism. And then there's the, uh, the date palm, which is the natural indigenous of the region and is um, uh, and sort of re represented uh, for Farah uh, Khalil in any case. Maybe, oh, well, I, I don't want to say properly Tunisian because the eucalyptus tree became Tunisian effectively. So it's at least something older than the colonial. Uh, the Tunisia that is older than the colonial, which of course is most of its history. So in any case, she sort of explored this dichotomy within the exhibit. She also explored uh, the influence of, especially the, the, um, the eucalyptus tree within architecture, which is a very interesting topic. It's, uh, there is the, the, the Palmarium, uh, in uh, downtown Tunis, which makes use of uh, all sorts of, uh, well, in this case, uh, palm symbolism, but there's also there's all sorts of uh, art deco architecture making use of this uh, of uh, floral symbolism. I guess plant symbolism. Not quite sure what the term is. Sort of, I'm using flora as like flora fauna. So, so yes, this was her project. And now on the uh, on the topic of um, art in the public space in general, 
where well there have been um you know a few relatively important sort of uh projects um in the in the past uh, several years there was the uh, there's the Jedbahut exhibit which was uh which was very important held in Jedba um this sort of uh, this is an ongoing uh, uh, exhibit. It happens uh, every two years, I believe, if I recall correctly. This is, I think, the the most important Tunisian exhibit to sort of have echoes at the international level. So, you know, I had a, an article dedicated to it in the New York Times, I believe, at some point. So, so there you go. And then there's also the uh, the Dream City Festival, uh, which sort of explicitly uh, sort of dealt with questions of art and public space. And um, you know, very important. It was uh, it was organized by the um, La Rue organization, and it dealt directly with sort of um, with questions uh, uh, that Tunisia was was dealing with post uh, after the revolution. So, which brings me then to I suppose the last sort of comment on um, art in the public space, which would be um, you know the sort of sort of street art. You know, in downtown Tunis, there's uh, a some there's quite a bit of street art, which has all sorts of interesting symbolism, you know, um, Yaz's, the sort of uh, uh, Berber symbolism, a kind of, in any case, a kind of, I think a lot of street art sort of tried to uncover uh, histories of Tunisia that had otherwise been kind of uh, suppressed, either through maybe a pan-Arabist project, which would be, well, the Buriba years, or through sort of just like, well, I mean, and also during the Ben Ali years, um, but between the two, a very dogmatic vision of, of national character sort of emerged. So paintings on walls, murals were a way, I think, to express opinion directly to the public. You know, I mean, it's not a gallery. Everyone can see it and you do it in the most important sort of place of uh, meeting point for for protest. So those those are relatively important. There is, of course, you know, and I briefly alluded to this before, you know, there is a sort of aesthetic of street art, which is maybe a different thing. There is a kind of beautification sort of thing. You know, you see it in, for example, um, you know, these wouldn't have, I guess this is sort of street art, but it doesn't really have a democratic message. I don't think all, all of that much, for example, in places like uh, in Tunis, at least, uh, or I guess in the, uh, in the suburbs, you know, you have uh, Marissa and Sidi Bou Said, you know, you have paintings on walls there. But I think those are meant to sort of connote a kind of, uh, I don't know, open-minded worldliness or something, which I think uh, is, is self-consciously a value, at least of, uh, I think, a more elite class. Um, so, so, you know, the meaning of paintings on walls is very different. And I think depending on which wall it's painted on, frankly. And then, you know, now I'm sort of repeating myself, but then you also have street art on a canvas and put into a gallery, which really means it looks like graffiti, sort of. I mean, that's what that means. That's a separate topic, though. So, yeah. Great. So to slowly reach a end point of our conversation, I just want to ask you whether you came to this research project with some initial assumptions, and if so, what were they? And has your research also shifted your initial assumptions and made you think about the contemporary art scene in a radically different way? That is a good question. The problem is sort of just that, you know, as my, I tried to sort of be flexible in my, in my assumptions as I went along. And, and now I'm trying to remember what my initial assumptions were. Now, the, I did have certain assumptions. I certainly did. You know, I, I, I do not have a training in, in art history, although I have an interest in art history and an interest in art and interest in history. But this report was 
well, an opportunity to delve into an area of social sciences that I hadn't delved into all that much before. And of course, I mean, I could do this because, well, because it was, it was general enough, you know, and sort of requires the, well, you know, certain research skills that I had already and, and not necessarily sort of the depth of uh, bibliography that, you know, an art historian might have. So, but what I did know, I sort of, um, or my assumptions uh, coming in sort of with, with this background or lack thereof, if you like, was um, I think I sort of, I expected it to be a small domain of activity and it is a small domain of activity. I um, expected it to be elite mostly, and it is. However, artists, not necessarily. I think it's, that's at least from what I could observe. Um, curators, et cetera, yes, or not so curators, but gallerists, for example, of course, but um, there is more diversity. And then I guess, uh, I think the main thing is sort of, well, after a while, when you start talking to artists, you know, well, artists aren't really kind of, you know, necessarily thinking about art the way I am, I mean, in this project. So, you know, they're not necessarily trying to respond to public institutions, private institutions, um, uh, you know, Tunisian reality, the men or, or, you know, the international art world, or they're not necessarily trying to deal with any of that. They have their own specific questions, which sort of an art is their medium. So in that sense, it was actually, um, I mean, sort of, I got to go somewhat, you know, into the intellectual worlds of specific artists, which is a, uh, which is a different thing from writing a report about art, you know, or doing research on art. Sort of, uh, it's a uh, it's a mode of uh, expression, the way a report is. You know, it's a medium. This was the the pleasure, basically, in doing it. You know, is talking to artists and and sort of when you find an artist whose ideas are really quite interesting. I mean, and they're expressing it through this medium because maybe it is in fact uh, it is it is a good medium, and maybe they've spent a lot of time thinking about medium, for example, and sort of. So these are, this is the, I suppose, you know, didn't really necessarily upend ideas I had, but it did, uh, it sort of relativized this project, I suppose, you know, you know, some people out there writing reports, some people are out there making art, some people, uh, so, <laughs> you know, I'm just, you know, in any case, this was, this was the pleasure in the report, I guess I'll say that. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast and good luck with all of your research into contemporary art and other interesting things. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Magrebian Past and Present Podcasts. To see related slides, please visit our website www.themagrebpodcast.com. Other episodes are also available on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, visit our Facebook page Magrebian Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to SEMA newsletter at www.sema-northafrica.org to SEMAT newsletter at www.sematmagrib.org and to Talim newsletter at legation.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghrib Studies. See you soon for a new episode.